right. Hey, what's going on, y'all? Welcome to another episode for the Leaders of Aviation podcast. Super excited to bring you our first uh, aviation collaboration podcast. Um, man, that was a big word, huh? Big word. But, um. <laughs> yeah, but you did it so well, though. I was just—I just gotta say, you have a very uh, upbeat, uh, good podcasting voice. You know, you—you you, you bring uh, some bounce to it. Good cadence, as it were. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So as, as y'all have heard, um, I am joined by the canceled for maintenance crew. Uh, they go by their call signs six and MVP guys. Welcome. And thank you for making this happen. Not oh, a thanks for inviting us, Jeff. And for all for everyone else out there from our end. So this is kind of going to be our uh, co-lab co-release. So you'll hear this on both sides of our channels. I'm sure the audience is basically going to be the same. But in case there's some gaps in there, we're hitting all uh, lines of view here or fields of view. And for everyone else, the Leadership in Aviation podcast is hosted by Mr. Jeff Lively, who is also an aircraft mechanic. And you're also running um, a business to help out people become pilots, right? Um, Giving um, the far end manuals with tabbed uh, references for all their tests and for their general knowledge. Is that correct? Yes, sir. It sure is. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been blessed to, to have helped, uh, uh, you know, over 5,000 pilots across the nation as of uh, this recording and super excited to help thousands of more on their, on their, uh, you know, their own aviation journeys. So uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. You know, excited to, to have to make this happen. And uh, as you did mention, I, I am an aircraft mechanic. Well, you know, uh, an army aircraft mechanic on the Apache AH-64 series, um, been in for about seven years, going to be getting out this year, but, uh, yeah, super excited to connect with y'all. And, and also, um, you know, we were talking pre-show and, and y'all have done some pretty incredible work as well. And so I'm excited to dive in and, and get to know y'all more as well. Well, I've done some work. I don't know if it's incredible per se, but, uh, <laughs> it's been work regardless. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> For sure. I, you know, I tell, I'll tell people, man, yeah, work on the Apache. And they're like, whoa, that is so cool. But like, they, yeah, I know, I know y'all understand. Um, I mean, y'all have done way cooler things than that. But um, anyway, okay, excited to get started and, and rock, rocking and rolling into it. So six and MVP, go ahead. Um, whoever, whichever one of you want would like to start, you know, how did you get into uh, aviation? Go ahead, six, kick it off. So <laughs> I, I originally didn't uh, fall into the aviation realm right away. I did a lot of side gigs here and there all throughout my time in high school. And just shortly thereafter, I did a lot of like uh, car mechanic stuff, um, mostly like just mom and pop shops. And then I did some stuff doing like telephone work, like installing telephones. And around that time, wireless internet started to become a thing, like very rudimentary wireless internet. And then Around those times, it just wasn't clicking like there's there's stuff to do, but it just wasn't that big of a challenge. And around that time, I I just signed up to join the Marines. This was right. I was around 17. So I actually had to get my mom's permission. That's a whole different story on that one. <laughs> but uh, uh, when it came time to pick my job, they were like, OK, what do you want to do? Six. Uh, well, I like to do if I'm going to join, I want to do Marine stuff. So I signed up to be a grunt. And right before my shipping time was coming, they said, yo, we don't have any more spots to be grunts, so you need to do something else. And that's when I said, well, you know, 
I like working with my hands. I like uh, having a challenge. I like being uh, given opportunities to find new solutions to current problems. So I picked aviation maintenance and it's been that way for, it's been that way ever since. Uh, I think actual wrench time I've had on planes was about 17 years. About 17 years I've been turning wrenches and it's mostly been on on Cobras and Hueys, like the predate to <laughs> the Apaches that which you're used to, but similar problems. And and then as I uh, progressed in aviation, that's when I started um, getting more skill as to what goes behind the scenes. I have done stuff like with maintenance control. And then now I do quality assurance stuff to make sure people's procedures, processes, and plans are all in line and are following with what the requirements are, whichever entity's requirements those are. I hope <laughs> I hope I didn't get too long-winded on that one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That, yeah, that's what's up. So awesome. Uh, MPP? Yeah, so for me, uh, so I got out of high school and, uh, you know, was ready to be done with high school, but wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to go to college, I, I mean, I kind of did, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, at the time, right. Wasn't ready to uh, just bury my face in more books for another four years. So um, in the summer between graduation of high school and uh, eventually going to uh, A&P school, you know, I was doing plumbing and electrical work and um, uh, I became the ditch, witch, uh, or I had to put on the waders and go through a, through sewers, um, I didn't get the glamorous jobs. I got, and, and that was purposely done, right? The boss gave me the literal shit jobs to ensure that I would go to school. So um, late one night, and my dad, you know, kept was hounding me, hounding me. Hey, all your friends know where they're going. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I saw a late night infomercial for my A and P school, and I said, "I'll do that." I always, growing up, I always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, jokes on me i still haven't got that license to this day but still something i'd like to do but uh so uh, i went to different branches of the military wanted to go fast you know like all of us did when we were little um but uh back problems uh pretty much put us put an end to that i asked about flying helos uh wasn't smart enough uh so what about heavies and they said meh we don't really have that so my cousins who are currently uh in the in the military they were like hey if you don't you know they said well we can start you out over here and then you can do an internal transfer and they said don't don't sign up for that yeah, you don't you don't know what you're getting into i said okay so i didn't sign up for it end up going to i said well i guess the next best thing is to work on it so i went to the school uh got dad off my back and uh did a p school came out of it with uh, the license and a degree and then from there um got linked up with my first job. And, and at the time of looking for the jobs, I said, I want to go as far away from uh, anything that I, I know and from people that I know and to a place that none of my family had ever been. So I ended up in the Southwest in California. Um, been here pretty much ever since, although a couple of moves back and forth across the country in the, in between um, came out started working UAVs and deployed all over the world with those. Uh, seen a lot of cool things was a part of a lot of cool things. I, I tell a lot of people that now like, Hey, what'd you used to do? And I, my 
common responses. I used to do cool things. <laughs> um, but, but so since then uh, I got out of that and I went and worked um, when I started having a family and kids were growing and I didn't want to be gone as much anymore. So I started doing AOG maintenance on corporate jets. Um, now it's still a lot of travel, but you're not going to uh, a lot of, a lot of rough and bad places. Um, so I did that, traveled all over Canada, U.S., Mexico, and the Caribbean, chasing private jets around. And then eventually uh, I got a call from another company to go work uh, space flight systems. And uh, so I did that for a time. That was pretty interesting. You know, it's just everything leading up to that point and then kind of uh, getting to there and seeing what flight characteristics are like in uh, zero gravity situations. That was pretty, pretty neat to see how everything operates and and applying what you know to that or what you thought you knew to that. Um, and then that, that company ended up moving on to another location. And at the time, that just didn't work out. That move didn't work out for, for family life. So I switched it up to become a maintenance control uh, back at my original place that brought me out west. Uh, and that's where I ended up meeting Six at. And we worked together there. And that's how we got the idea. Well, he got the idea. We would have these conversations every day at work, and he goes, "Man, we should record some of these. These are these are pretty good." And that's that was the birth of the Canceled for Maintenance podcast, and that's how we got started. Since then, he and I have moved on to different uh, different uh, places of work, but um, similar job. So I'm the current uh, working in QA uh, manager, and uh, like like. Six said, you know, just going through and verifying everybody's following process procedures, being safe. Uh, my big thing is the being safe one. I, I kind of harp on that one more than anything. I tend to let let a lot of the little stuff slide. I'm pretty relaxed when it comes to being uh, quality. But uh, if it's like a safety violation, that's where that's where I'll come over the top a little bit. I don't want people getting hurt. So uh, and that's where I'm currently at. Again, a little long-winded, but uh, that's kind of my story. Love it. Awesome. Hell yeah. So, man, there's a lot to digest and, and, and uh, uh, you know, untackle there. So, <clears throat> uh, Six, you mentioned when, when you were first getting started, you were working a lot of side hustles. Was that just kind of like on your own or is that uh, like were you doing um, uh, like businesses on your own or, you know, what, what did that look like before you joined the Marines? Uh, so it was mostly just like learning to learn um, uh, a lot of mom and pop stuff that I helped out was like a family member or a friend of a family member. And they usually come around and ask, like, hey, we need some help uh, uh, doing this or they would come and ask, hey, do you want to go overhaul this engine or something like that? Like, heck, yeah, I do. And it was either that or play sports. And I only played one sport out of the year and it was over with, like within the first quarter, which was football. and. Once uh, once that was over, like, well, I got nothing else to do. I'm not part of any clubs or anything like that. And my school didn't have an auto body shop program, which I don't see why they didn't, but they didn't. And that was just a way to keep me busy. It kept me out of my house. It kept me from just blowing my brains on, on video games 24-7, which I I still do. <laughs> but <laughs> it, uh, it gave me something to do. And it, it never... Uh, it, that uh, that passion was still there to fix things, and I just the, what really drove me to it was I was able to 
troubleshoot stuff, like figure out what the problem is and how to find the solution, even though it's not readily there. And those mom and pop shops, they, they didn't have any actual manuals or the manuals they had were very outdated. So majority of what the air quote manual was, was just whatever someone remembered in their steel trap of a brain. So like, oh, what do we do? Like, I don't know. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I remember growing up, my grandpa, he, he, he was similar to, to that mindset in terms of, you know, he would literally just take a random lawn, push, push lawnmower take it apart and put it back together, you know, for no, no reason per se, just more so of wanting to know how the mechanics and of, of that, of that uh, machine worked. And um, I can't say I had that desire as well, but I will say that I know um, being maintenance minded is um, it, it's a unique skill set that a lot of people um, I don't think fully understand, you know, people probably relate maintenance to just going into the car shop and, you know, they do whatever they do in the car shop, but then aircraft maintenance, aviation maintenance in general is a whole nother beast that a lot of people don't, don't fully understand, you know, like with the airlines and uh, when there's maintenance delays, sometimes, yeah, sure. It's ludicrous. And, you know, the airlines just make, make whatever up, but a lot of times it's actually a serious issue that could be a, a flight safety hazard. Right. Right. And like, like you just said, like when it comes to aircraft maintenance, it's not like you just pull into a shop and just let it go. And then it just magically becomes better within the span of an hour to three hours. Uh, some of these um, maintenance tasks, you know, like they're driven by certain directives, certain regulations, or there was like a, a notice that came out saying like this part is now bad or these parts tend to fail after so many hours. So look out for this. And then it just so happens when you when you pull up that regulation or that safety message that every single part that you have is coming due or close to due to that message. And, and so now you got to slowly start to figure out, OK, how do we schedule this in such a way to do all this required maintenance and not affect the overall schedule of things? Cause, and then that's when it, it kind of, it runs into those issues. And everyone here is at some point in time, I've seen it where you're stuck at the gate. It's delayed for whatever reason. And you get that random snide comment that says like, well, how long does it take to change the tires? How long does it take to change the brakes or what now is broken? I mean, it's not like a car where you can just pull over to the side of the road and check your, your tire pressure levels or jingle the spark plugs uh cables a little bit to get it working again right like, <laughs> i mean well what a lot of people don't realize is is half the time of the job is actually the paperwork aspect of it because you have trip i mean i know from my experience right working in the fa realm you go to change a tire all right, it takes you takes depending on the size of the jet but it takes you 20 minutes to to swap out a tire um and it takes you another 40 to do all the paperwork because you need copies and triplicates and uh and of the the aircraft logbook needs triplicates one that's staying in the book one for your copy for your work order and then the other one that you send back to wherever home station is or maintenance control is at for that particular operator you have to send it back to them and they have to review and approve prior to releasing you to flight so um a lot of that's a lot of that's due to that right the job didn't take very long. It's the, it's the backside, the, the desk work. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember I was flying and I was coming back to Waco from, I think it was military training once. And um, long story short, there was a maintenance issue and 
um, supposedly it was fixed, but it had to be signed off. And the guy that could sign it off was like 45 minutes away. So there was a delay that it, it you know, we, we couldn't legally fly. Um, and I just, I found that interesting. So to, to kind of lead into that side of things too, um, you know, is in, in the maintenance side of aviation. So I have a very basic understanding of maintenance. So, you know, if, if some of the questions are kind of off base, please forgive me, but with, with maintenance, you know, is there kind of like a, uh, you know, that entry level A and P, they do the work. And then there's another, uh, maybe like a supervisor or as y'all, what, what, what y'all currently do now, maybe uh, a quality assurance side to where y'all are the ones that come in and do the paperwork end of things and check off that the work was done properly. So as, as from the quality aspect, I, I might be there as they're doing the job, just verifying that they got the right task open and you know, they got everything, uh, tools, the calibrated tools are current and not expired or whatever else. But I, what I will do is I'll go back and check logbooks. I might go check it a week later, three days later, whenever, a month later. But if I go back and, and find that an indiscretion there, then, yeah, that will fail that. And they got to rectify it and everything else um, might not be on the spot. And then from the maintainer's uh, side of it. So as you're an entry level mechanic, come in and typically you'll be working. So say I'm entry level. And six is our is our seasoned mech. You know, he's the lead. He's the shop lead. Um, you might work directly with him for a time, and then he'll be buying off your OJT or on-the-job training forms for various tasks that you've been doing on the airframe or engines or whatever else. And then, uh, you know, once six feels I'm comfortable to do those jobs, like I said, he'll buy that off. And then eventually I'll move on to that next level where I'm not um, – I, I can work on my own. But I can't sign off the in, the inspected buys. I can only get first signature, the corrected buy aspect of it, and then six would still have to come behind me and get the verify my work, and then get the inspected buy, and then eventually, over time uh, and and getting experience, you'll eventually move into that same level where six is currently at, and then you can uh, you're the one who is training the new guys and buying off work. Yep, and and, um, and it really depends most organizations are set up that way uh, for the military. It's a little more cut and dry. Like you got level ones or sometimes they'll call them entry levels and you got level two, three and four. And they all have like their different le- permissions say to uh, sign off stuff. Like um, entry level guys are not, a, are not capable of signing off uh, engine runs or unless they're certified to do it. There's like little nuances here and there, but uh, like what MVP was saying, like you get like you just because you have an AMP license doesn't mean you're certified to work on our specific plane. I mean, you can. Right. And it all depends on what uh, shop or what organization you're with. If they'll allow you to work on that. And there's a different title for that. I think it's uh, what part uh, one. You, uh, what was that? Rick? Uh, bridge my gap here real quick. MVP. When um, oh, you got your like, one. You got your well, you got your. Part 91s, your part 145s. That's your- it. Yeah, that's it. So like that, those is what's that kind of covers entry level guys for doing those work. And that's kind of also their air quote second signature, if I'm correct on that one, MVP. Yeah. So when you're, if you're working under a 145, you're essentially buying off the work uh, as the 145, right? So, so um, the good part about that is you're sort of protected, right? So if, if something happens or they're found, you're found to have done something not to code or to the, to the book or whatever else. Um, 
the 145 takes the hit, not your direct license. Now I've watched guys on the ramp, you know, get spot checked by the local FAA inspector. Um, and the guy was found to be doing some shady work and they cut up his card right in front of him. Never, never to get his A&P again. Right. So yeah, it's pretty serious. So that the the good the good side of the one forty five is you're protected a little bit. Um rather as if you're just working to your straight straight off your A and P, which I've done both sides of it, you know. And and you got nothing to worry about as long as you're following you know, following procedure. Um it's not a problem. Right. And then the and then the quality of it all, uh depending on the organization, quality is kinda like your buffer step before a government entity gets involved. So like, say like with part 145, you have your quality assurance guys or inspector authority guys. They'll be the ones checking your work, making sure it's valid. It's correct. It's to code. It's up to specification. And that way there, and if there's something wrong, they'll be the ones to check you before say the government comes and starts cutting up licenses and stuff. So if you're, if you're going to get in trouble, it's better to get in trouble by your in-house quality or your in-house inspector authority than a government entity who has the, all the rights and privileges to revoke your license forever. Yeah. So for like in six and I's current situations, right. He, he is the, he is the government and I am the private sector. And so my whole job, that's what I tell people. I said, my whole job is to stay ahead of him. Right. I got to catch all the stuff before he catches it. That's, that's my sole purpose. Uh, yeah, obviously keeping people safe and make sure things are getting done right, but far better. And that's what I tell like our, our, my organization I work for far be it better to get a fail from me than from them. Right. Because there's, there's, there's takes a money hit, you know what I mean? And then money drives yeah. everything. So it's kind of like maybe this would be the wrong analogy, but if, you know, if a, if a business is what, as they're growing, they become an LLC. So they're kind of protected in, you know, part 141 kind of, or excuse me, part 145 kind of has that, uh, that yeah. protection layer as well. Yep. That's it. Cool. cool. Similar to that. Awesome. Um, all right. So uh, backtracking just a little bit too. Um, you know, I want to get a little bit more into both of your stories. So six, I know that you said that you, you worked on Cobras and Hueys primarily. Um, I'm a huge Bell helicopter fan. I grew up around the Bell 206 series and, um, you know, Bell is, uh, I'm biased, you know, I think they're the best helicopter company in the world, but you know, I do want to get your opinion on the Cobras and the Hueys, especially the modern ones too. Uh, you know, what series uh, did you work on? And, uh, you know, when, when you got out, what were the ones that were currently in? So when I, when I came through, uh, I worked on the November series Hueys and the Whiskey series uh, Cobras. Uh, the Whiskey series, it just, they just had a, a mod done to it where they have like these, well, they, they had a couple of them. They had these uh, exhaust shields on them to kind of deflect the, the exhaust um, fumes, but they realized like it was heating up the tails too much. So then they came up with this other one where it, it um it it was like a turn turret exhaust where it pointed away from the tail. And those two were the most prominent when I was around. And it's same with the Hueys. Some of them had the the automatic uh, flight controls where it was all powered by ru- very rudimentary avionics equipment to kind of assist with stability control. But we also had a good amount of them where they just still had the stabilization uh, stabilization bars where it looked like a whole other hub with two giant ball weights and then just kind of 
offset the the main rotor as it's spinning. Those were actually kind of fun. I like those ones. Me personally, I like the Huey as far as main uh, maintainability because when they're fit, when they work, they work fantastic, and their maintenance was extremely low. But when you actually have to dive into it, that's when it kind of gets kind of hard because this was made way back when when troubleshooting wasn't really necessary. I would say because well, Vietnam era stuff, right? Yeah. So, or like Vietnam Desert Storm era stuff. So, like everything still worked on on uh, mechanical linkage and springs and diaphragms. So, there was like very little, if any, avionics equipment in it. So, whenever there was a problem, it was almost instant. You can troubleshoot where it's coming from because it's giving you this much, and it it was all mechanical friendly. And the Cobras, on the other hand, were very uh, easy to do maintenance on because everything was so small, but it was out in the open. Like I can do engine changes on that thing for days and it, it'll be done within a shift. That's how fast an engine change can happen on, on a Cobra. But then again, they're both very small to begin with. So, I mean, unless you're lacking something like parts or support equipment, it can usually be done within two or three shifts. Uh, as I was, as I was leaving, uh, they just rolled into the Zulu style or the Zulu series Cobras, which is the four bladed. And then they, they had the Yankee style Hueys also four bladed for about four years uh, before I left. Uh, those ones, they're, they're pretty, they're, they're pretty awesome planes. I'm not going to lie. Like the uh, Hueys, they had such a massive power boost from having that extra oomph and the, and the four main rotor blades. What I didn't like about those two was since now everything's going avionics heavy which is the trend for any, any organization within the aviation realm. Once it starts going aviation heavy or avionics heavy, then it starts to start turning into like, you have to be sort of an uh, electrical engineer to understand how everything works and what ties into what. So your troubleshooting tree becomes a lot more challenging. Like something goes out like, okay, it could be any number of these avionic systems over here. <laughs> It's not cut and dry like the mechanical linkage and springs anymore. So that, that, that part was a bit of a challenge, but it really did open my eyes as far as if you want to excel in being a mechanic, you need to start diving into other trades, specialties like, say, avionics, which not a lot of mechanics love to do. And it's also like, say, with sheet metal and composite, especially composite, because Almost nothing's made out of metal anymore. A good chunk of an aircraft is made of some form of composite and understanding how they work and how to work with it is such a, f a fundamental skill to have. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I, I, I do want to ask you all too about this. Uh, thanks for bringing up the, the avionics, like just the advanced features that are coming out. Have you all seen the new concepts for some of these? Like for Bell, for instance, I know that they're coming out with I forgot what the project is called, of course, at this very moment, but they literally the entire the entire dash panel in the cockpit is a screen. It's touch screen. It's it's just it's so advanced. It's so cool looking, you know, it, what, what what are some of y'all's thoughts on that? And is that actually like not that it's not real, but, you know, how far how realistic and far away are we as, um, you know, um, in, in terms of uh, aviation technology today? How far away are we from actually implementing that in today's aircraft? 
Well, it's already out there. I mean, it's there depending on where you work and what platform, but like if you look in some of your larger private jets, like your like your Gulfstream G650, your Challenger uh, five, six, and eight thousands, your Challenger six oh fours, they're all they're all glass cockpits. Everything's touchscreen. Like in the in the Gulfstream, the G650. I mean, you go in there, and once you once you start up as a mechanic, you just hit run diagnostics, and it'll it it's so smart it'll tell you everything that's wrong with it. It just really helped. I mean, like the troubleshooting is almost done for you now or like on other platforms you just plug in a laptop and you can you can find out what's wrong with it and hell you can even fix some of this stuff from there you can adjust all your parameters you can do uh, flight control rigging from that um, even some of the systems there's a big oil tank reservoir in the back of some of the larger private jets and then from the cockpit you can service each motor from that and then all you have to do is service the uh, main reservoir at some point whenever it gets low but yeah, you can go a lot, a lot further between. It, it's there now. Um, it's it's the way everything's going. Like six said, uh, it, and it's it's actually it's pretty it's pretty nice. It's handy to to help you out um, with doing a job because, like six said, with the with the older airframes, man, you can be out there. I mean, just pinning out wires for days, and with the new style, it'll tell you exactly where there's a, a fault in the in the in the harness. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, and then right now, even, you know, doing, doing the pilot stuff, I mean, yeah, there's a backup manual, but shoot, it's a, everything's just point and click now, right? You taxi yep. here, you just, you set your waypoints and go. They'll even taxi on their own. For sure. And, you know, bringing that up too with the automation. So I know there's a huge push in the aviation industry for automate most industries, right? But especially with uh, in, in our in our world, right, where um, there's a big push for just having, uh, you know, aircraft that are non-piloted and just, you know, fully uh, computerized. So what, obviously, with being on the maintenance side of things, you can't really have a computer, not that you can't really, but, you know, you, I don't even know how to ask it, but how is the automation process coming along in the aviation maintenance industry compared to like the pilot, the, the push for, for non-piloted aircraft? Well, it's just funny. We were talking about that the other day. All the maintainers will have like their own little R2-D2 walking around. It's got all the manuals and stuff <laughs> loaded to it and they carry it. They pull a toolbox. You're having conversations with it. We can't wait for that day, to be honest with you. <laughs> it just like, it's going to be awesome. It just like <laughs> it, it shoots a hologram of the schematic on the on the airframe. So, you know, exactly where a part is, because how many times have we all looked at each other and said, like, where the heck is this part? It's supposed to be right here. The manual says it's here, but it's it's not. Or it's behind like something where like you can't get your hand through. And then you start scratching your head like, well, how the hell am I supposed to get to this? Like, well, what genius designed this? Why is this here? Like there's a whole firewall or engine right here. And I have to like somehow like noodle my hand into it to get what I want. <laughs> right. Right. So y'all are kind of expecting that, that, that next phase of, you know, I mean, pilots for now are needed, but AMPs are, that's kind of uh, more so a guaranteed job because, you know, I don't think robots, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, but, you know, at least on all aspects of, of aviation maintenance, you know, won't be uh, fully automized. Right? Yeah, I think, I think we're quite a ways away from that aspect when, 
you know, on the factory lines or whatever else, assembly lines, yeah, robots can do a good bit of it. But uh, talking AOG, you know, you're going out there just to replace a, a hydro pump or whatever else or or troubleshoot some electronics. Yeah, they, they can troubleshoot for you. But as for changing that specific part, I mean, that's, that's crazy amounts of programming into a, into a C-3PO, essentially. <laughs> right. You know yeah, what right. I mean? I think, like, uh, as far as, like, automation is going to be happening for the mechanic side of the house it's it's going to primarily be more on the logistics side of stuff than it is for like actual like mechanics to or automated mechanics to fix things for you uh unless like you're talking like manufacturing where it's building it for you and like as far as logistics concerned i think they're already starting to come out with this like they have ipads or some kind of tablet system where you can pull up all your publications and all your specs and then Whenever you sign off your work, it's already pre-plugged into the into the sign off. And then if there's any alerts or messages from, say, uh, higher authority or your own maintenance control, even it just beams its way into your your tablet. So you can you can get like the latest and greatest as to what's happening schedule wise for that aircraft. So you're you're not doing maintenance that you shouldn't. Or Or even service bulletins, right? Instead of being the old way where you had to go research service bulletins prior to going out and working you know you look through your logbook to make sure there's nothing there it's kind of step one and safe for maintenance but um you know you have to also research and see what service bulletins are are there well now they're auto plugged into into the manual so as you go and pull up your your computer with the manuals all that downloaded for that specific tail number if you go do a certain task and there's a service bulletin alerted with it i mean it'll it'll pop up and say must complete you know, at, at this interval. Man, that is cool. That is awesome. So th- thanks for that. So, uh, MVP, I know, uh, or excuse me, MPP, uh, we've, no, MVP, uh, you had it right. Oh, my apologies. MVP. So, um, no <clears throat> we kind of hit on six's background. So now I want to kind of backtrack to yours as well. So you were sitting on the couch watching, watching some TV and an infomercial come up. Uh, talk, talk a little bit more about that because you know now in today's uh at least i think some of our audiences won't really understand that late night infomercial uh you know uh advertising that we all saw back in the day oh yeah yeah so i was, it was late at night come home i think from my girlfriend's house or whatever again dad was was harping on me about what i'm gonna do because everybody that i graduated with i uh, had already known what they were gonna do and and keeping up with the Joneses, right? He didn't have anything to talk about with the other dads because I had decided what I was going to do. Uh, so I was watching TV. It's probably 1130 at night. And that commercial came on for the school uh, that I went to. Um, I don't know if I should say the school's name or not. I mean, it wasn't a bad school. I just don't know if I should say it. But anyhow, uh, yeah, I saw that come on there. And that was that was the one and only time I ever saw that infomercial. Never saw it again. Even while I was at that school, I never saw that infomercial. Wow. But it was just like it was popped up and I said, huh, I like I like planes or at least, you know, thought I did Um, and still do. There's a love hate relationship in there. I'm sure we all can agree on. (laughs) Yeah. But but yeah, so that next morning I woke up and I told told my dad, I said, hey, I I saw this last night. I said, why don't we go check it out? So we jumped in the truck, drove over to. where that school was, did a tour, and I said, "Yeah, this will work." 
I just made it. I just made it on the spot, and I didn't know if it really if it was for me or not. I just I said, yeah, it'll work to get to get dad off my back, and uh, and and so far it's worked. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's, also, cool. it's definitely one of those where like you weren't sure that was going to be your passion, and then once you touched it, like wow, this is amazing! I can't believe I haven't even remotely thought of this. And I'm sure every 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 person who's ever been a pilot at some point have had that epiphany. I mean. It's uh, for pilots. It's kind of it's either if you've always wanted to do it or you ever, never knew that you needed it. And yeah. uh, I see this a lot when people go on their first uh, fam ride. I think that's what it's mostly called. Or, but they'll get, on, rides. they'll get on like their first flight. You know, they're just a passenger, just trying to see how it feels and all that. And then they get up in the air and they do these cool bangs to see the the cool scenery. Uh, what whatever time of the day it is. And then the the acting pilot says, you know what? take controls just just feel around see how it feels like and then as soon as their hand like like touches the controls and then they go left or right whatever they're instantly in love and they're like oh my god this is it you know like they they've they've reached the the euphoric point of their life like this is it. this is what i'm gonna do i, I don't care how much it costs i'm gonna be a pilot <laughs> yep, yep. and then they and then they start researching to all the different steps you have to take to get there and they're like wow this this is a lot uh, this is a lot to do, which is, uh, again, uh, a big monumental testament to you as far as giving them the answers. Well, basically the answers on the far aim, like this is what you needed to, to study to go for this. This is what you need to learn to do this. And like, how far do you want to take it? Do you want to be a private pilot? Do you want to be an instrument rated pilot? Do you want to be a CFI? Multi-engine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's so many different options. And then some of them are like, wow, I can do all IFR, of this. VFR. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. And, and you know what got most of us into it, I think, too, right, is is like we all wanted to travel, but most of us are broke. So we go, <laughs> well, how can I travel but get paid to do so? And, and really, aviation is an excellent, whether you're a maintainer or or a pilot, especially a pilot. Um, man, you can get out there and see a whole slew of different places you never thought in your life you'd see. Yeah, for sure. The opportunities are are endless. Um, so now this 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 question is for both of you now. So you know, for on the pilot side of things, for training, you know, typically if you go through, uh, depending on what school you're in, or you know, what if you're on a fast track, you know, some people can finish everything within a year. Other people, you know, they take a couple years. But for A and P school, I know that it's 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 more um, it's way more detailed. Um, there's a lot more that you have to know and you have to learn. And for some of the the, the viewer or the viewers, the, the audience that is listening that will that is interested in A and P school, take take them on a little, you know, take them on a trip on what A and P school is like, and you know how um, not necessarily difficult because anything that's new, um, you know, they'll there's always going to be a learning curve, but. You know, how, how difficult is it to get through a school? So, uh, it's actually not that difficult. It's, um, it's going to sound terrible to say this and maybe some people get mad at me, but, but think of like your Votex school when you're in high school. Uh, it's the kids who didn't do well at normal high school and they sent them to the vocational school. At least that's how it was where I grew up. Um, they weren't, they, these are oftentimes you get guys in there and gals, but who, who weren't interested in books, but good with the hands and like the mechanical and, 
wiring and all that kind of stuff. So you find yourself um, at, at A and P school, but it's not it's not very hard. There's class, you know, typically it's classroom work in the morning, and then depending on what school you go to, right? So most of them are eighteen months straight through, and mine was twenty two months just because you came out of it with a with an associate's degree. Um, whereas the other ones, you just come out with your license, um, your, your A and P, but I would, uh, you know, you, you got to do a little bit of math work, a little bit of, a little bit of writing, a little bit of, um, you know, gen fam, uh, kind of things. Oh, we had to, we had to learn how to do, uh, to create blueprints like the old school way, sit there and you had your, your graph paper on those big tables and your ruler and and scales and you're drawing everything out and then you had to go and um take what you designed and build it kind of thing which is kind of cool but but not overly not overly difficult yet your instructors are all been in the industry 40 years or whatever and they retired from the from the flight line to the to the teaching setting which has been uh which was neat you know i mean some of those guys had really really cool experience um but yeah, so so in the states specifically here in the United States, our our school schools are more. It's a license to work. You don't come out as a as a master of anything. Um, it's it's literally a license to work, and that's how it was explained to me by one of my one of my favorite instructors we had there. Um, he goes, "You guys have, are know enough to be to be dangerous, and that's about it." <laughs> um, and, and that's exactly what it is, right? You get you get all your experience, uh, at least here in the states. And then once you're out, you go work somewhere, and you kind of work your way up the up the ranks a little bit, as uh, Six and I talked about earlier. Now in in Europe, you know they they fall under EASA over there. It's the European Air Air and Space Administration, I think it's what it is. So under under EASA, um, it's a lot longer of a process. So in the states, you license to work. You can work helos. You can work fixed wing you can work unmanned you can work balloons you can work what you know zeppelins whatever you're into uh but in in iasa you can only be uh type rated on three airframes at one time and they'll send you through the whole school and i think we had one uh, one of our listeners six they said it took them 16 years yeah to become fully type rated on three platforms and about the time that they got type rated on three the first one they were typewritten on, um, they pulled it from from um, use, right? Mm-hmm. No yeah. longer a usable airframe. So now they had to start over on another third one uh, and, and a newer newer airframe. Right. So so over there, it takes a lot longer. Now, what's really cool here in the states is if you get a chance, like to say to go to uh, Challenger School, Bombardier School, or Gulfstream School, or whatever, they typically are like a month to two months long, but you will come out of that uh, a master on that airframe. I mean, you will go through every system. You will learn all the stuff. You will learn how to use the softwares that they do to, to troubleshoot and how to, um, you know, load the different softwares and, and how to load your different uh, maps every 30 days and all that kind of stuff, how to do engine changes and, and you'll even tear the motors apart. Right. And you can do the same thing for engines in the States here, Pratt and Whitney school, which is really excellent a really cool school to go to if you get the chance um so that's what they that's the the baseline in europe but here in the states um you only get that if your employer deems uh you necessary to to have that which is it's few and far between 
in the grand scheme of things. But but for A&P school, not super hard to pass. I suggest anybody who goes into it, um, um, just put your nose to the grindstone and do it. One thing I wish I would have done now. So when I went through school, um, you you had classroom work up until a certain point. Um, and so you do classroom work in the morning, shop work in the afternoon. It gets to a point where you're strictly doing shop work. I wish I would have. So I just went through the A and P side. You know, I went through the the mechanic side, but I wish I would have gone back through the class side and got my FCC uh, license. So that was another route you could do. Um, an FCC is like an avionics certification. Uh, you you learn how to disassemble radios and put them back together, and you know certain types of uh, other avionics equipment. Um, so you could you're certified to pull those apart on a bench, right? So if we're out there in the line troubleshooting and we've determined we got this box that's bad, well, you just pull the box and replace the box. But on the inside, the only thing that might be bad is a diode or whatever. And with that FCC, you can take it apart and, and actually just replace the diode and thus saving that that particular customer thousands and thousands of dollars in uh, in unit repair, right? Just replacing a, a 30 cent diode. Um, that's one thing I wish I would have done. So that's that's one thing I have to say is if, Whatever your school that you go to offers, do it all while you're in school because it's once you're out and working, it's hard to it's hard to pump the brakes and go back to school. Believe me, I know. <laughs> Most definitely, uh, and uh, like there's so many different ways to go about your AMP. You can go to AMP school. Um, uh, may not be ideal for most people, but you can join the military and get your experience that way. Or you can do what a lot of people are starting to do nowadays is sign up for an apprenticeship with a airline or an, or an aviation group uh, organization. And as long as there's a licensed AMP there, you can have all your OJT sheets by the FAA or if the company has their own set, uh, get signed off um, for all those different tasks. I think usually an, an apprenticeship is about two to three years, depending on what it is. And then once you get all that uh, signed off and done, you go to the to the FAA, schedule your AMP tests. There's about nine of them. And once you pass them all, you get your AMP license. Now, most people are going to that route because some people just don't like school. Um, some people just don't like being in a classroom setting. They'd rather be 100% hands-on all the time, which is fine. And they, and they cater to that. And the good part about going through the apprenticeship program is you're most likely going to be work whatever. Once you do get your AMP license, that's the type model airframe you're going to be working on. Like, you know, for a fact, that's what you're going to be working on. And depending on what airline or what company it is, they may just hire you outright and start paying you as a licensed mechanic because you've already done two to three years, sometimes four years on that apprenticeship for them anyway. There's so many different uh, avenues to go about, but I think what gets missed a lot is a lot of people just see being an aircraft mechanic or an av or aircraft technician as just one of those dirty jobs, kind of like just waiting around in sewage water. Like this is below me. This is not something I want to do. Everyone wants yeah. to focus above the wing than below the wing. And which is fine. If you're, if that's your dream, that's cool. But just letting, letting everyone know, like at some point in time, there's going to be more pilots than mechs. And I very rarely see a, a pilot turn wrenches on their own plane unless they own it outright. So 
when airlines start telling pilots to fix their own planes and pre-flight their own planes, you might see a lot more drawn out delays on the gate <laughs> than it is already. <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. So, yeah, you know, I've I've been I've been interested in AP school too. It's just you know, matter you know exactly what MPP was saying was um, just make having the time to set aside and prioritize it. You know, right now it's for sure not ideal, but. Um, it, you know, I, there was a gentleman that I interviewed, um, uh, episode three, uh, his name's Brandon Melendez and he's, he's an AMP and also he has all his certifications for being a pilot. He is currently flying the Learjet and, um, it's just, it's a super beneficial skill set to have to, you know, for people that are looking to hire other individuals. And you know, I didn't even think, you know, what you just brought up with the airlines, one day that's probably going to be the case is that, you know, maybe they're going to have to have some sort of certificate maintenance certificate that will allow them to properly pre-flight the aircraft for takeoff. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, tad bit of something that we, uh, on, at least on the pilot side need to uh, think about and, uh, you know, more so, be grateful for because, you know, being maintainers, I feel that it's not the glorified position that pilots are, but it's just as if not even more so important um, in the realm of things. Well, especially for big operations, right? You'll get pilots out there that'll scrub a, a revenue flight uh, for a couple of bulbs being out in the cockpit and they'll scrub the flight. They don't care. But if you're right there in your ramp, you're like, no, 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 keep the engines running, stand by. You run out there, you know, pull a couple of spares from stock or out of the flyaway kit, change a couple of, uh, what are they, 68, 63, 83s or something like that, or 63, 80 peanut bulbs, really tiny things. You pop those out in five minutes and then have a good flight. You know what I mean? But otherwise, um, that flight would have been scrubbed and you'd have lost, let's say in the corporate realm, you could have been twenty, thirty thousand uh, dollars over a couple of over a couple of 50 cent bulbs so um <laughs> you know uh, a lot of companies you know are, are realizing that that maintenance can really save dollars rather than than spend them yeah we spend a lot of dollars but there's in there's so many more instances where like you said or, or imagine uh, the air crew now has to go out and and buy off the pre-flight on their own jet before they go well good luck getting any flights out on time <laughs> right I'd, ima- you know I'd imagine I mean? they would have to adjust the crew rest cycle like significantly because I know for most organizations, like the air crew is not allowed to even roll into work no more like 14 hours before their shift is supposed to start. Right. Or they're uh, 14 hours from the land time. I think I got that mixed up, but yeah, yeah they, 14 it, hours from land time. Right. So like if they showed up to work and it's like hour 15 before their land time, they're like, nope, nope, nope. You can't come in here. You need to leave. We didn't see you here because that that starts going into like crew rest regulations and stuff. Like we don't want that kind of legality. But if if it, yeah. if it ever came to the point where the pilots have to be their own mechanics or be their own pre-flighters, like I'd imagine that cycle would have to drastically change. And then this goes into like the mental health of the pilot him, uh, themselves, where now we're extending our lead time by this much just to pre-flight the plane. Like now we're having more pressure on top of him, him or her, like having to fly the plane. Now they got to make sure that they prep the plane correctly to get it going for smaller planes, like uh, privately owned planes. That may not be such a problem, but like when you're talking airliners or heavies or something where like it's carrying 
multiple counts of people, I, I can see their mental health deteriorating like significantly. Well, but think about this too, though, right? We're you know they're writing up on a pre-flight. They might write up fifty-five different things, but but twenty of those are you know uh, within limits or can be mel. They don't know that though. They don't know what the MEL is. Well, they they should know what the MEL is contains, but they might not research it at all. Or they might go, "Hey, this panel is missing two screws." Yeah, and the allowable limit for missing screws on that panel because it's not structural is is four. You, you get what I'm saying? So so we're just we're we're shutting things down uh, for lack of knowledge, unless they're going to pump all those all those pilots through A and P school or whatever too. But that's a whole other. <laughs> Oh, well, they're added cost. You know what I mean? So, so, you know, I, so I will ask you this one. Uh, uh, for pilots, when they go to their training, is, is there a part in their training that involves some type of mechanic uh, familiarization? No, not, not, not at all. Um, now, I, I say that we, we're taught. So, like, for instance, becoming a private pilot, you, you know, the first certificate that you get, there is in the FAR AIM a section of, uh, that specifically states the type of maintenance um, that the that the pilot can perform, which is changing a tire, changing the oil, um, super basic thing, like you know, similar to what car maintenance is, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing uh, detailed though, but um, no, yeah, going through training, you you are a hundred percent focused on um, all all characteristics of flight, not not anything. Um, you know, they teach the mechanics of the airplane. You know, you do need to know how the landing gear retracts and you know with the hydraulics and uh the, the engine components and um you know the aerodynamics of the aircraft but actually getting your hands dirty no there's there's not really um uh to my knowledge anything that uh that is covered see uh, uh for, for now this may be a little bit a big of a push but i would say uh to kind of bridge the the pilot mechanic gap is have like a familiarization maybe i don't know like two weeks two weeks to a month about like okay this is what the aircraft is here's what it entails as far as disassembly reassembly and installation and and all those and all those things just to give that extra bit of appreciation is like this takes time this sucks this is uh very critical and this comes from my time in the service. There are, there are moments where I can tell when a pilot's brand new because he walks up to the plane and he's completely lost. Like he has no idea where we're at. And then uh, kind of going to like what MVP was saying about not knowing what's tolerable and what's not. Like they see something and they start pulling the 21 questions and then they, they can really see the anxiety and panic in their eyes. I'm like, it's okay, man. Like relax. Like, this is totally okay. This is totally fine. It was in the write-ups that you were supposed to screen before you walked out here. So yeah, um, just having that little bit of familiarization really helps, uh, especially when it comes to diagnosing what the problem is. Um, we run into this scenario a lot when air crew or the, or the mechanics, they can't translate to each other's um, issues. Like when a, when a pilot comes down, he says he has a problem and he says he experienced XYZ in flight. There's only so much we can diagnose on the ground when the aircraft is off. So you say X, Y, Z, we're seeing ABC and we're like, oh, this doesn't jive. And that's where you get those could not duplicate uh, problems and vice versa. When we're saying we have, we're seeing ABC on the ground and you go up in the air and it's saying X, Y, Z, like it, the, the translation gap is 
it's it can be just like this little bunny hop or it can be this monumental canyon and it all really just depends on the familiarization between the pilot and and the ground crew but if there was i would say if, if i could push anything i would say to have some kind of familiarization where both of them can attend or both of them can can um coexist and take together then that way it just makes it that much easier for each other to talk versus just this is what the the far says for xyz this is what the far says for abc and then you guys gotta be the the bridge that gets a uh, c to x <laughs> right. well so one thing we started doing like when we were in deployed settings we get pilots who would over g or hard land you know bounce hard on landing um an airframe and they would just be all nonchalant like oh hey guys by the way we we hard landed that one or we had an over g we hit the over g sensor or whatever and like so yeah uh sex to suck but we'll catch you later like sex to suck nothing to get out in the hangar and we would force them to come in the hangar and then do every bit of maintenance that was required or inspection that was required for an over g or a hard landing and, and they and they're like this fucking suck this is our like yeah you were gonna go back to your room and chill and we still got 10 more hours worth of work so guess what nerd <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and, and and it did help like some of them were like damn i didn't realize like i thought you guys would just have to quickly look at it and make sure nothing was no homie we gotta we gotta pull we gotta do a lot of stuff here to make sure that what you did didn't damage the airframe like well it didn't seem like it was that hard didn't seem like it was that hard but regardless the inspection criteria states that if you hit that hard landing or over g sensor at all that we have to do this and so it did, it did change their mindset a little bit like, oh, okay, it's not just, it's not just like my car where eh, it seems like it's okay, you know? Right. Yeah. There, yeah, there's, there's for sure a huge um, gap for, between pilots and maintainers. Unfortunately, I think, um, you know, six, what you were saying, it, that, that should be an absolute ne- necessity during training. Um, I, I think for both sides too, you know, especially for pilots though, um, just because it, it brings more awareness to the actual work of, Hey, this is what it takes to keep me flying and keep my paycheck coming in. So, you know, it's something else that's interesting too that I find um, or that I hear and read about. So everyone talks about pilot shortage, this pilot shortage, that, and then there's a sidebar of, Oh yeah. And aviation maintainers are going to be needed. Um, people, I don't think it's realized that if the maintainer side of things doesn't grow as well, hate to break it to you, but the pilot side of things won't grow either. So in, in the main, in the maintenance um, side of things, you know, maybe y'all can talk about what y'all have been seeing for, um, from this, uh, the current shortage that we're kind of getting more into now. A lot of overtime. Tell you that. I'll nail on the head on that one. A lot of overtime, like just as much as there are not enough pilots to fill flights, there are not enough mechanics to make the flights happen. And uh, we, we've all seen, how having both shortages are just drastically affecting travel, affecting uh, commercial flights, uh, revenue, and uh, movement of goods and stuff. Um, you you hit both of you hit the nail on the head on that one. Like without the mechanics or the technicians to maintain the planes and get them ready and get them scheduled to go, there even if you had a no pilot shortage, if every pilot was available and every single one of them was mentally healthy, physically healthy, emotionally healthy. There will, there'll be nothing for them to do because they'll, they'll have to start cutting pilots just to have enough to go to do it, candle the flights. And it's just sad to say, like, 
for both pilots and the mechanics, there's not enough people coming in. And you can speak to this uh, best where in order for you to get trained to be a pilot, there's so many steps you got to do and you got to be on point with all that training. And then likewise, if you're having any issues, both physically, mentally, you know, that weighs a factor too. Like what limits you to be in the air? How often can you be in the air? Uh, how many flights can you do back to back? And we've all seen where like, so we're, we're not as okay with just putting your head down and, and just grinding it out until the gears fall off. We're more, con- we're more conscious about how much we're able to handle. We're more conscious about what we're willing to handle. And, and we see it more nowadays where pilots, they're starting to break down from all the back-to-back-to-back flights. Likewise with the mechanics, the ones that stuck around or the ones that are still available, they're working back-to-back-to-back. And both of them, when the fatigue sets in, you start missing things. You start making easy mistakes. And those simple mistakes can be the big difference between landing softly and having a major uh, mishap. Right. For sure, gentlemen. So, <clears throat> so thanks for that. And, um, you know, as we continue going into the shortage, it would be interesting to see some of the, um, uh, I guess, uh, I don't want to say regulations quite yet, but um, how the industry decides to handle it you know as you were mentioning earlier six there's apprenticeship programs that i don't think a lot of people are aware of um you know i think that that needs to be promoted more in the industry um especially as we uh as these uh uh delays and and such are getting worse and you know i hate that i i don't like to you know, have a negative connotation around the industry at all. You know, we all love aviation, but it's, it's something sooner has to, something has to happen sooner rather than later because um, everyone isn't really paying attention to the new technology that's coming out, the EV pole, right? So there's going to be a whole new perethra of, hey, we need pilots for these and we need maintainers for this, this side of things. And when that, when that gets launched as well, that's just going to deepen it even further. Yes. Well, absolutely. one thing that we've noticed, or at least that I've noticed has been a trend is money is typically last spent on training. So as new things come out, they just kind of, yeah, you'll pick it up as you go along. But like, it might be nice to send one or two of us to, uh, to the training of this new, uh, like the glass cockpits, for example, just, just so a couple of us know what's going on and we can train the rest, but some of us should probably go to the manufacturer's, uh, school for this you know but but nobody wants to spend the money on that training uh most organizations and then you know we were talking about earlier about air crew having crew rest well uh there's nothing that really exists well excuse me the fars do have a very tiny tiny little bit in there about maintainer crew rest but it's not required um it's not hard followed by literally anybody that i've worked because i've worked 200 and 20 hours every two weeks for a time and nobody wants to talk about that. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a lot of hours to put in a lot. Of, and like six said, you start getting those small mistakes. You know, I've, I've slept, I've slept in the back of the shop van waiting for parts to arrive on the ramp, you know, before and, and things like that. And I would be curious, curious to see the FAA would update the regs to, to get a little more, strict on that. Hey, if air crew can't, can't be around at the, you know, if air crews 12 hours or whatever it is, um, 
then you know maintainers got to be at least hard at 14 or 15 something like that because because you know so the safety aspect well the care crew can't be tired because it's safety aspect yeah well, what about the guys keeping that sob in the air too you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> right so so i'd be curious to see if they're if they're looking into that at all and and thinking about changing it you know i, I liked how you mentioned too about like the technology progressing like and this is absolutely true for the aviation specifically because like what you see is cool now within two to three years it's obsolete and i think that's just technology in general but with the aviation side of the house like um we we can kind of, we see it already with the training where like we get these new guys rolling in and all they know is the avionics equipment or all they know is how to troubleshoot on this type of platform and sometimes and the training can be lagging in some aspects to some degree but that's again going back to the whole how much money do we have to front for training so we get some of these new guys and their knowledge gap from the time they finish school to the time they get to the line is so f- large because we've already, by the time they finish their 18 to 24 months of school, we're already five to 10 years into the future. We have glass cockpits and fly-by-wire uh, flight controls. And then like, whoa, I've never seen any of this stuff in school before, like ever. And it, it's, um, it's definitely something that we all need to be ahead of the game on. Like, what's projected to change in the next couple of years, we already know the avionics stuff or the, the technology that runs the plane is going to be different, but what else, right? right. Is our regulations going to change? Is our way of conducting maintenance or flights are going to change? And that's something we all need to continually adapt for. And then I'm thinking smarter as far as flying and maintaining, because if we're just using the same formula over and over and over, all we're going to do is just burn each other out faster and then wear out our, our people and equipment faster. Right. And, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Yes, it is. <laughs> yep. Man, so, there's a lot of insanity in the world. <laughs> um, for sure. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. We're going to have to do another episode. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Um, uh, six and MVP, you know, if, if the listeners want to learn more about what y'all are doing, especially with uh, y'all's podcast canceled for maintenance, and if they have just maintenance questions in general, A&P questions, you know, where, where are some good places for them to connect with y'all? So you can uh, go, go to our main website at cancelformaintenance.com. We have a contact form there. If you want to email us some of your questions, that's the one of the best ways. Or you can touch base with us on our social medias like uh, Facebook at Council for Maintenance, our Instagram at Kank, C-A-N-X, for Maintenance Podcast, or on Twitter at CXMX uh, Podcast. Instagram's probably been like our best um, avenue for approach besides emails because uh, with with Facebook, there's a lot of extra fluff you got to go through. Like you got to scroll through the text before you can find the picture or you got to scroll through the whole screen to find the message me button versus like Instagram is just in your face and it's right there. Whichever avenue is easiest for you, for you, the listener, to get in touch with us, please do. And we're always uh, available for listener feedback. Uh, if you need help with uh, certain questions or you uh, want to understand the process better, we either ourselves know or we can connect you with someone who does. Yeah, and then do you have any show suggestions or, or topics you'd like us to cover? Please, please send those our way and we'll, uh, we'll do our best to get those incorporated in. 
And for, for our listeners, where can we find more about the leading Leaders in Aviation podcast? And if, say, someone does want to become a pilot, how can they get their hands on uh, your reference to FAR AIM manuals? Yeah, for sure. Um, so something that is kind of unique. So I, we were talking about pilot shortages and maintainer shortages. Well, there's actually a FAR AIM shortage this year as well in the 2022 version. Um, so right now our products uh, are limited, but... Um, people are more than welcome to come check us out, livelyaviation.com. Um, you know, all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, uh, LinkedIn, uh, just search Lively Aviation, um, except for if you're, wanting, if you're wanting to listen to more of the of certain podcasts that we have, um, just launched a Instagram page, uh, The Leaders of Aviation. And feel free to check us out there. We've got a couple of cool things coming out uh, this this year that we're currently working on um, one that's going to enhance flight training. Um, so yeah, just, just uh, that those are some of the places that, that you can connect with us and, you know, same thing of what six and MVP were saying, any questions for, in regard to flight training. And um, you know, if, if I don't know, I for sure know someone that does know. So feel free to hit us up with questions. And um, if you have certain topics that you'd like to be covered too, happy to address those as well. And uh um, yeah, so guys, thank you so much for today. I had a great time. Um, again, we're going to have to do another one because I, I, I have so many other questions, but um, for, for time, uh, you know, in terms of time limits and stuff, and I do have another podcast today, but um, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Most yeah, definitely. I'm definitely be down to do another episode because I didn't even get to jump in and ask you questions on stuff on your end. So maybe the next go around, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do some focus on your, on your stuff. I think that would be good. Cool. Yeah, it sounds great. So um, again, thanks for joining us today. And uh, until next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. We'd like to take this time to thank our patrons for supporting our show and allowing us to continue to make episodes, maintain our gear, and create merch for all of our listeners with special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Ryan Freshour, Dan Schubert, Jenny Dignan, and the ladies of the Dick Talk and Mimosas podcast, thank you all so much for your support and patronage. Visit our shop at cancelformaintenance.com and grab some swag to show off both your support for us and your prowess as an aircraft technician. If you have ideas for the show or you'd like to be a guest on the show, visit our contact us section and send us a line. We will do what we can to get your ideas or yourself on the show. You can also follow us on social media such as on Facebook, at Cancel for Maintenance, Instagram at Kanks, that's C-A-N-X for Maintenance Podcast, or on Twitter at C-X-M-X Podcast. Check out some of our affiliates like Rockwell Time, where they make both rugged and classy watches to fit your lifestyle. Use the code CX4MX and save 10% off your purchase. Support us on Patreon. Our patrons get exclusive perks such as access to our Discord, discounts and early access to merch, special patron-only episodes, and so much more. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.